Andy Deemer, and you are listening to the Fail Better Podcast. Now, everyone else talks to amazing product managers and legendary startup CEOs about their hugest successes. Eh, I'd rather learn about the failures so we can avoid making their mistakes with our products. Well, this is the Fail Better Podcast, where I get those same great product leaders to open up about where they screwed up and what they should have done instead. Today, I'm talking to a great CEO. The first company he co-founded, GameSpot, is still one of the biggest and best video game websites in the world. He ran all product for Yahoo Emerging Markets as their chief product officer for years. Now he's the founder and CEO of the global agile training and consulting company, Good Agile. He's also my big brother. His name's Pete Deemer. And Pete, thank you for coming on the Fail Better podcast. Hey. Tell me, in your 25 years of running tech companies, what are you most proud of? Definitely GameSpot. It was uh, was and is a great product, and just the fact that it's still in existence 21 years after its founding. Yeah, that is pretty remarkable. It's funny that ZDNet acquired GameSpot, and a lot of it was shut down by their parent companies. GameSpot, meanwhile, is still this huge, influential brand. What was it like having a bunch of executives come in and bossing you around? Uh, you know, they didn't really do that. I mean, in a funny way, we took over seeing that more than they took over GameSpot. <laughs> uh, my my two co-founders and I all moved into pretty senior roles in product management at ZDNet and over time managed a bigger and bigger chunk of their product line. Swallowing the fish that's trying to swallow you guys. Yeah. But that's not what we're here to talk about. So this is the Fail Better podcast. What company are we actually here to talk about? Uh, well, I, looking back, so, I, so I've been involved in entrepreneurial ventures for almost 25 years now, and I have done successful startups and unsuccessful startups, but the one that I look back on and, and feel like I learned the most from was uh, a small company called Techadence, and in the space of about a year, managed to drive the company into the ground. Um, <laughs> So, uh, oh, no. well, let, let, before we get there, what, tell me or, the original or, element. Or sure, rather than say drive it into the ground, I think it's probably more accurate to say I was one of the pilots when it flew into the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, uh, let's slow down a little bit. What was the pitch? Tell, tell, what was the original company pitch? Well, so the company Techadence was started by two co-founders. One had been the founder of a company called iFilm, and the other was a technology person who had worked at Adobe, had worked on After Effects. He'd, he he uh, was one of the creators of After Effects, wasn't he? Yeah. The two of them had come together and, and founded Techadence. It was a small company uh, still, a dozen people. The, the idea was it was going to be a visual tool to enable people to very rapidly develop Java desktop applications without writing code. To use a buzzword of that time, uh, like a WYSIWYG Java application? Yeah, sort of WYSIWYG development for Java applications. And so, so the, the two uh, founders had approached myself and one of my GameSpot co-founders about an angel investment in the company and they had a, a great demo and told a great story and we put in a little bit of money. I was 
feeling increasingly bored in the larger company environment of CNET and starting to look around for other things to do. And Tekkenens had what I thought was a, a really cool product and a team that was starting to kind of flail a little bit and they, they needed stronger executive leadership. And I decided to make the leap from CNET to become CEO and try to turn the company around and raise a real round of funding and bring the product to market. The situation when I got there was the product development for the, for the 1.0 release was in its latter stages, but the company was running very short of money. So my first job was to raise enough funding to get through the product release and then attempt to raise a larger round that would enable us to market the product aggressively and grow the company uh, aggressively. And how did that go? Well, um, you know, it it was very interesting. One of the first days I was on the job, I took the senior team meeting that I'd set up with a senior person at at a major uh, enterprise software company in the Valley. This company, I felt, was a prospective investor in Tekadens. The contact there was a friend of a friend. And the senior team and I went in and sat down and gave a demo of the product, talked about the strategy. And uh, this person we were presenting to just tore it to shit. <laughs> explained, explained with you know amazing clarity and with amazing brutality exactly why the product was not what the market wanted and why as a business we were doomed to fail. It was one of the most painful single hours of my career. <laughs> We walked out kind of stunned. And obviously in that situation, all of us had placed major bets on this. I mean, the two founders of the company had spent the previous two years working, you know, night and day to build this product. I had just left a pretty senior position at CNET and had invested some of my own money in this company. And, you know, your first reaction in that situation is to try to discredit the critic. And so so sort of on the drive back afterwards, it was like, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they're threatened by what they see us building. And this is a negotiating tactic. They want us to to believe that what we're building isn't isn't worth anything so that they can, you know, negotiate a better deal on the investment. And, you know, so we came up with a whole litany of reasons why this was a <laughs> guy who was full of shit. In hindsight, the guy was not full of shit at all and everything he told us was exactly correct. And our reaction to that meeting was arguably the single biggest mistake we made during my tenure as CEO. Because, you know, had we taken a step back and said, as painful as it is, this guy may very well be right. And before we do anything else, we need to validate that. And we need to, we need to figure out, is what he's saying correct or not? Because if, if what he's saying is correct and continuing down the path that we're going is absolutely the worst thing we could do. You know, at at that point, there was still the possibility, however remote, of a pivot. Six months later, when we released the product, there was no possibility of a pivot. We did not have the money in the bank still to, to continue. So I think our reaction to that hand grenade that was dropped in our laps was to cover our eyes and pray that he was wrong, which I think is a very natural reaction, but it's also the worst possible thing we could have done at that point. But you must have shown it to other people in the industry and other potential investors. Did they have 
different feedback? We did, and you know, we, we showed it to other folks, and what we got was sort of a tepid response, which we interpreted at the time as they just don't quite get it, which I think in hindsight was actually they were probably thinking many of the things that we had been told in that first meeting, but but they you know didn't have the sort of the candor or the cruel streak to tell us quite so bluntly. In hindsight, over you know many years as an angel investor and as the senior person at Yahoo, we we just have a constant stream of startups coming through the door pitching Yahoo on investment or a partnership. And so often you're you're in that meeting, you see these poor startup founders pitching you their idea and they that they've spent maybe years working on and they put every penny to their name into it. And it would so obviously just be such a, a nothing burger of a product, you, you, you'd look at it and just kind of cringe. But of course, you didn't, didn't want to be a jerk. And, and mm-hmm. so you'd say, ah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't think it's a good fit for us right now, but we encourage you to uh, come back to us you know, in six months and show us what you've done. And so it was the polite kiss off. A lot of times from, from startups that I've worked on, yeah, when you're showing it to people for the first time, you think, well, you know, there's still some rough edges and they're just yeah. put off by the rough edges, but we'll sort those out. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And it's, you know, as a founder, it's like you've got this vision in your head of how amazing the product is going to be. And it, at any given point, you look at the product and it does have so many rough edges and it, it's so far from that wonderful vision in your head that when you show it to somebody and they're not instantly wowed, your thought is kind of like, well, if, if they could only see the vision that's in my head, then they'd be wowed. And when, when we get the product to the point of the vision in my head, then they will be wowed. And the fact that they're not wowed now, it's not valid evidence of anything because they're not seeing the real thing. And, and, I, and part of the problem is that I think in any product development, the, ex, the essential characteristics of a product do actually become visible very early on. The rough edges are there, but but the essential characteristics are actually visible. And if you can't grab someone's attention with those essential characteristics, then that's a major, major red flag. And, you know, one of the characteristics of great entrepreneurs and, and you know, not just entrepreneurs, I mean, great leaders at, at big companies, too, is their ability to not believe the lies they're they're telling themselves about how everything's going to be good and this product will be successful. It's almost taking that paranoid opposite position of being convinced that what you're creating has deep flaws in it that you just can't see and having the courage and the discipline to figure out what those flaws are and, and get them fixed. It's, it is the biggest trap that you can fall into as, as a founder. So you guys ignored the advice and and disregarded people with tepid responses and just churned forward toward the release? Yeah, worked day and night and and were convinced that once the product was done, that it would be an instant hit. And I and I think this is we this was the other kind of classic founder mistake we made was belief that our product is so great that viral popularity will propel it to success. Mm-hmm. And and again, that's just a wonderful dream, but it's kind of like somebody dreaming of being a movie star and saying, well, if I can just get on the bus to Hollywood, when I get off the bus, 
I will, I will be discovered. I just got to figure out a way to get to Hollywood and then everything else will sort itself out. You know, and the reality of course, is you step off the bus, that's when the real hard work begins. <laughs> that's when the real struggle starts. And of course, so we, we released the product and had some really cool early successes a speaking slot at the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference. It was very cool because I got to demo the product uh, on a stage with Steve Jobs standing off, you know, on the wings of the stage. Wow. Yeah. You know, we gave a great demo and got a, a great response. People liked what they saw, but it was more like, a, oh, that's that's cool but it's not something that I actually need or, or, or will, will use. Who was the target market? Well, and that's a big part of the problem is that we created this hypothesis that there was a large number of people out there who wanted to build desktop applications using Java, and they didn't have a tool and they needed a tool to do it. There actually weren't that many people that wanted to build desktop applications in Java. The people who did want to build desktop applications with Java were typically developers who, for whom the WYSIWYG was a nice convenience. But the way Technus Magic worked is that basically it, it generated the code, but the code was not actually editable. So it was, it was essentially a black box that got output at the end of the development process. And the people who actually needed to develop Java desktop applications, which was already a kind of vanishingly small market, those people needed the ability to get hands-on with the code itself, which the tool couldn't do. And the people for whom the black box output wouldn't have been an issue, essentially non-technical users, really didn't have a whole lot of need to be building applications. So it was, in recounting it now, I just kind of shudder with embarrassment at how wrong we were about so many things. This is one of the rare instances where I think we got every single thing wrong. Like normally you get a couple big things wrong and that's what screws you. Here we got everything wrong. <laughs> give, 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 give me a solid example. There wasn't really a market uh, of any size. So that's strike one against you. Huge strike one against you. The market, the small market that we could serve, the product didn't really serve them particularly well. And we bet everything on viral success. And we didn't have a plan B for, for what happens if that viral success doesn't appear magically by itself. And, you know, those, those are three of a number of other terrible mistakes. How many copies did you sell? Uh, I think like four. <laughs> these were, these were large enterprise licenses for like $20,000 each. Oh no, no, no. These were, these were like four copies at like 500 bucks each. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wait, how, how did that feel? When you released it and you sold four copies. Well, you know, here's here's the funny thing I've I've learned, and and this actually I think is a really profound realization for for any startup founder. Success when you achieve it doesn't feel nearly as good as you thought it would, and failure when it happens doesn't feel nearly as bad as you thought you would. You know, with Gamespot, it's like we. We worked night and day for several years building this product, making it successful, 
we, we got recognition pretty quickly and we sold the company, you know, making all of us, I, I mean, not, not rich by, by Silicon Valley standards, but by normal human standards, you know, we did very well. But in the final analysis, you, you kind of feel the same. And with Tegadence, you know, the gray fear, I mean, I, I had never experienced true failure before. You know, GameSpot had been almost an instant hit. I mean, from the first couple months after we launched the product. And then with Tekadent, it was like, oh, shit, we're going to crash and burn here. And I realized that pretty quickly that things were not on a good trajectory. And, uh, you know, but when it happened and when you make, when you tell everybody, hey, we're out of money, we're closing the doors, you dread that moment. But then when it comes, it's painful and, and really sad and really disappointing in the moment. But then, you know, the next day you wake up and you say, okay, what am I going to do next? I want to hear about that day that, you closed it down, but but what what did you guys try to do before that? Like, was there tinkering? Were there pivots? No, I mean, part of the problem was that we 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 had raised enough money from angels and sort of non professional investors to be able to finish the product development and release it. And our hope was that with the finished product in hand, it would start to get traction with customers. And that we could use that finished product and an early traction to be able to to go out and and raise professional money. So when the product was released and it just didn't get traction, all of a sudden we had no money in the bank and no realistic chance of raising money. And there just wasn't any room to pivot. I mean, it, it rapidly became pretty clear that unless everybody at the company was willing to work for free, there was just no path forward. And, and again, had, had the product shown early signs of success and had it really started to get traction, I think we could have managed to, to get past a, a period of no money in the bank and not, not being able to make payroll just because people had invested so much of their you know, they put so much you know, heart and, and soul into the, the product. I think we could have made it past it. But when it really wasn't getting traction, I think everybody realized around about the same time that, that this just wasn't going anywhere. A lot, a lot of startups, it seems like the team behind them really believe that there's going to be, you know, world domination or at least world changing effect of the startup. But this one, it sounds like pretty quickly things were just on a downhill trajectory. Yeah, well, it's with any startup, you're starting with a mental picture of success. And because there's no actual physical reality to back that up, it's by definition an exercise in kind of collective fantasy or a mass psychosis <laughs> among the, the people involved. Yes, we are a successful startup, even though we have nothing to show for the success because success is coming. And you can preserve that fantasy and that mindset and use kind of small successes to bolster it. And so, for example, getting chosen to present at WWDC, that was like evidence that, yes, this is going somewhere. And getting a big round of applause after we gave our demo there is like that's more evidence. There's, there's this great quote from Mike Tyson 
everybody's got a plan until they get a punch in the face. <laughs> Coming to the market and getting that punch in the face, all of a sudden you realize, oh shit, we've been lying to ourselves without realizing it for all this time. What are we going to do now? The funny thing is with GameSpot, you know, we did basically the same thing. We, we had this vision. We believe this can be successful. We built a product, we launched it, and it was successful. And in a funny way, GameSpot, as my first startup, taught me all sorts of terrible lessons. If you believe in your idea and you deliver on your vision, it will succeed. And Tekadence was almost like the anti-GameSpot in that it showed us the reality, actually, that is much more common in that scenario, which is that you're wrong. When you realize you're wrong, unless you're prepared for that, you're, you're screwed. Do you think you could have saved the company with all that you know now if you had just listened to that first invest, uh, potential investor? Yeah, well, no, I don't think we could have saved the company. I think we could have saved ourselves and our investors a lot of money and some amount of time. You know, short of taking everything that had been done, throwing most of it away and starting over, that's the only thing that could have possibly have saved us. But in that situation, we wouldn't have done that within Tekkenance if we had a a better idea that was something completely different, we would have just done that from the get-go. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, the basic mistake I made with Tekadence as an investor and later as CEO was failing to do due diligence on the idea and, and the strategy and, you know, allowing hopeful optimism to trump a careful scrutiny of the reality of the situation. If you were going back in time and giving yourself a, a book or a tool, a book and a tool, what would you give yourself? This sounds like a fairly uncreative answer. But frankly, if I had read the book Lean Startup before doing Tekadence, I think that book would have given me the strategies to recognize the reality of our situation much sooner. One of the key takeaways from that I took from Lean Startup is that every startup is a whole long list of assumptions that will make or break your company. There is a market, they have a need, and our product is going to satisfy that need, and, and we can make money satisfying that need. You've got those core assumptions that will make or break your company, and every startup founder believes that they're going to satisfy all of those core assumptions. But the reality is actually chances are multiple, you've got multiple of those assumptions wrong. And until you figure out which ones you got wrong, you're on the path to failure. So, so you have to kind of start off assuming all of them are wrong and then systematically validating each one, one by one, as quickly as possible and continuing to validate them as often as possible. And that's, that's where the whole idea of the minimum viable product comes up is that the only real validation for any of these assumptions is going to come in the form of a real product in the hands of real customers. And so designing your company not to produce a product, but designing your company to validate these core assumptions early and often by getting a product in the hands of customers as early and uh, evolving it as, as often in, in order to optimize those key assumptions. I think that's really the key. So it's a whole mindset shift. It's like approaching your, your startup with 
deep skepticism and still having that great hope and that great faith, but balancing it with a deep skepticism that we're getting something wrong. And even if we get the other assumptions right, just getting one of these core assumptions wrong is going to doom us. So we got to figure out which one do we have wrong as soon as possible and get it right. Now, I love his anecdotes about these insane bootstrapped MVPs. Like, I don't know if you remember the Zappos founder driving over to his local shoe store to buy each pair of shoes over the counter and boxing them up and mailing them out to his customer just to prove whether people would buy shoes online before he built the whole back end and delivery service. That was an MVP. He's got some some other great anecdotes in there. Yeah. Well, there, there's a great quote. I don't know if it's in Lean Startup or if it's somebody commenting about it, but it's, if you're not embarrassed by your MVP, you waited too long to release it, <laughs> which, which is so, yeah, which That's is great. so hard because it's like as a founder, you have this vision and you talk this vision up to so many people, to employees, to investors, to your friends and family. You worry like, ah, if we put something out there that looks like crap, we're not going to be able to raise money. Our employees are going to lose hope, yada, 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 yada. It's kind of like as a founder, having the courage to get an MVP out there, something that does look like crap, but is an effective vehicle for testing those key assumptions. And also having the selling ability to convince people that what you see is not what you're eventually going to get, that this is just the test. Probably the most successful startup I've been involved with was a company I was a product advisor to them. Uh, it was a company called Expert City, and it was a professor out of UC Santa Barbara. He had developed this technology for secure screen sharing, and they came up with this idea. They were going to build a marketplace for tech support where if you had a, a problem, you would log on to this marketplace, and you could see tech support people who are online and give them access to your machine, and they'd fix the problem. And it, it was a great concept. They launched with essentially a minimum viable product and very quickly learned that several of their key assumptions were utterly wrong. One of the most key assumptions was that people would feel comfortable turning their machine over to a stranger over the net. They could easily have continued down the path and say, well, we're going to market and message our way around this problem. We're going to convince people it's okay. It's just a matter of people getting used to the idea. But they had the courage to back up and say, we're headed in the wrong direction here. They went back to the drawing board and they came back about six months later with a new product, which was go to my PC, which was more successful, but not even quite at the level that they had been hoping for. So they went back again and came back with go to meeting, which of course has been phenomenally successful. And they were eventually bought by Citrix for $350 million, something like that. So that, that I, I point to as kind of the the best example I've been involved with of an MVP that led to a major pivot and not just one, but really essentially two pivots and ultimately build something that was hugely influential and, and very successful, very popular and made everybody a lot of money. Well, so everyone who hasn't read the lean startup needs to go out there, go to, uh, fillbetterpodcast.com and click the link there so I can make 10 cents from uh, that purchase. You know, as we're, as we're talking about books and GameSpot, I'm suddenly reminded when Osama bin Laden was executed or killed, what, what, what was found in his last hideout? Yeah, well, this was in the press reports. This is just insane. But they, they were talking about the 
items that have been recovered by the, the SEAL team and brought back for the intelligence folks to analyze. And one of them was a GameSpot strategy guide, uh, which I, and I don't even know what, what game it was for. but uh, It was for Delta Terra- Force Extreme 2. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. How did you feel when you read about that? Just uh, aghast. <laughs> the only <laughs> word I can think of. How about tool? Is there a tool that that you would recommend your old self have used? Uh, I would say actually two tools. One tool that I actually really like is uh, it's a rapid prototyping tool called Balsamic. It's like Balsamic, but with a Q at the end. It's just a, it's it's a really nice tool for rapidly sketching user interfaces and you can use it to think through product flows and build paper prototypes. It's cool because you can sketch out UIs, but it it actually draws the UIs. All of the lines are essentially in crayon. So it's easy to see that it's just a sketch. We're not looking at a polished UI, but it but it's great, especially for non-technical folks to sketch things out. Yeah, I, re- I love Balsamic. What's the other tool? It's not really a tool. It's a technique called the Pomodoro technique. It's a time management technique that I personally have found incredibly useful. It's just a way of reducing task switching and, and maximizing focus. It's, it's basically setting a kitchen timer for half an hour and then taking a five minute break. Yeah, it's, it's a little, little bit more than that, but not much more than that. And then obviously, I mean, this, this, I think probably goes without saying, but you know, agile practices like, like scrum, especially, um, you know, I can't imagine you'd have a, a startup in this day and age that wasn't wasn't using those practices either either in name or just naturally following them, even if you don't call it, quote, agile. If I were to do another startup, those would all be key parts of the core practices. Who, w- who would you want to hear talk about their biggest product fail? Uh, you know, I, I think hearing, talking to Sean Parker would be super interesting because it's like, here's a guy who has a track record of amazing successes, Napster and his involvement with Facebook, and also amazingly public kind of disasters like the unveiling of airtime four or five years ago, I guess it is now, but uh, he's uh, a guy who has really gone to, both ends of the extreme of uh, success and failure. And uh, I think he'd be a, a fascinating person to talk to. Uh, I will reach out to him. Pete, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to your brother about Tekadence Magic and, you know, and as well as GameSpot and Good Agile, which we didn't really cover. But everyone should check out Good Agile and check out the Scrum, uh, the Scrum Primer. The Agile Primer? Scrum Primer. The Scrum Scrum Primer. That's the book that everyone should read. I'll put up a link to that on philbearpodcast.com. I'm not going to pay you 10 cents, though. <laughs> okay, thanks, Pete. Actually, I will. <laughs> You're sweet. <laughs> thanks, thank, you, thank you, Pete. Bye-bye. And thank you, listener, for listening to the Fail Better Podcast. Again, I'm Andy Deemer, and you can find the website at failbetterpodcast.com, and I'm putting up links to all the books and tools that'll help you build better products. And with the pennies that I get in affiliate fees, you can support this podcast. 
Now, I, I do Twitter at Andy Deemer. I do LinkedIn at Andy Deemer. Uh, Facebook at Fail Better Podcast. Our theme music was composed by the wonderful Yuri Sasanoff. And tell your friends about this show because, because you don't want them to fail. Do you?